Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. Good morning. Happy third week of Advent. Uh, We are in our third week in our Advent series now, uh, When the Word Became Flesh. That title comes from the opening of John's Gospel, that amazing prologue uh, that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Just a little bit of review before we get into the message today. Uh, That word, word, is the Greek word logos. And logos was a term from Greek philosophy. It's a little hard to describe exactly what logos means, uh, but one way of putting it would be the wisdom that made the cosmos. The wisdom that made the cosmos. Um, I like to describe it as the mystery that generates and sustains reality. Throughout history, human beings have always wondered, where did this all come from? What keeps it going? What is the source of it all? And the Greek word for the answer to that was the logos. Now, many religions believe in a logos of some form. They wouldn't necessarily call it that, but they believe in a logos of some kind. But Christianity is unique in that we proclaim that the logos, the mystery that generates and sustains reality, became a person, took on flesh, the person that we call Jesus Christ. And this is the time of year when we specifically celebrate that that happened, that the mystery that generates and sustains reality, God took on human flesh, became a person, was conceived as a fetus in the womb of Mary, and was born and laid in a manger. Now, each Sunday in Advent, uh, we've been considering uh, the significance of a different aspect of when the Word became flesh. So, three weeks ago, we considered the significance of Jesus' genealogy. Last week, we considered the significance of Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. And this week, we are considering the significance of the virgin birth. When the Word became flesh... He was born of a virgin. He had no biological father. And this is a part of our faith that's important enough that it is included in that ancient summary of the faith that we recite nearly every week here at St. Paul's, the Apostles' Creed. It says, He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So, let's look at... uh, one of the places in the Bible that talks about this. Uh, We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 
26. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you uh, for this special time of year. Uh, We pray that you would impress upon our hearts and minds the wonder of the Word becoming flesh. And Lord, we just want to give our attention to you right now. We pray uh, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, uh, that you would transform us by the power of your Word and your Spirit. We give you thanks. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So what is the significance of the virgin birth? Well, the first and most obvious answer is that it is a miracle. I still have this memory uh, from high school where uh, my Latin teacher was talking about the Christmas story. It was, I think, the day before our Christmas break. And she mentioned the virgin birth, and one of the kids in the class was like, Well, that's ridiculous. We know now that that doesn't happen. The Christians need to change what they say, right? Because now we know. Um, But of course, she was missing the point. God bless her. Um, The whole point of the virgin birth is that it is impossible. It is only possible with the special action of God. And the reality is, that people in those days were just as aware of the impossibility of virgin births as we are today. Even though the scientific revolution hadn't taken place yet, people still knew this. Um, That is why Mary says, how can this be? And it's why when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, he starts to plan how to divorce her, right? Because they understood how the process works. The virgin birth is a sign that God can do the impossible. God can bring life where no one would expect it to be. It's also a sign that God needed to intervene in the world in a miraculous way. As human beings, we find ourselves in a world that is in the grip of sin and death. 
And the reality is that if we are going to be delivered from the power of sin and death, we don't just need a pep talk. And we don't just need good education. Uh, we don't just need the scientific method. We don't just need good parenting. All those things are important. All those things are valuable. But what we need to be delivered from sin and death is a miracle. We need the special intervention of God. And we see, through the virgin birth, God doing that special intervention from the very beginning of the process. We need God to step in and do something, and he did. The virgin birth is also a sign of Jesus' uniqueness. From the beginning, he is different from every other person who ever lived. It is a sign that he is divine having no biological father. And yet, the fact that he is born from a woman's womb is a sign that he is like us, that he is human. The virgin birth is a sign of his divinity and his humanity. And this is the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of Christ, that Jesus is not 50% human and 50% God, but rather 100% human and 100% God at the same time. That somehow in Christ, the nature of God and the nature of humanity meet. And you might have noticed that both of the lines in the Apostles' Creed that talk about the virgin birth, they are phrased in such a way that they bring out both the divinity and the humanity of Christ. So, that first part, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, he was conceived? Right? What, what God is conceived, right? That emphasizes his humanity, right? But the fact that it's by the Holy Spirit, not by a man, indicates his divinity, right? Same with the next part, and born of the Virgin Mary, right? Gods aren't born, right? They always are. And, and so that emphasizes his humanity. He was born, right? But it was by a virgin, so, that emphasizes his divinity. Earlier this week, somebody asked me an interesting question. It was something like, is Jesus our father or our brother? And I think the virgin birth helps us to answer that question, which is, there is a sense in which Jesus is both. He is our father because he existed before any of us. He has always been and will always be, as the Apostle Paul wrote about Jesus in Colossians, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together." Hey, the virgin conception is a sign that Jesus is not just another link in the chain of being. He precedes the whole chain of being and is the one in whom the whole chain of being holds together and exists. The virgin conception is the sign that the one who comes into the world through Mary is also the one who made the world. And so it is true, in a sense, that Jesus is our Father right? We exist because of him. 
But the miracle of the incarnation is that the one who is our father chooses to become our brother. The Apostle Paul described Jesus as being the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. He is our brother because he becomes one of us. He is born. He takes on flesh and blood. And with that, he experiences all the things that we experience. Hunger, thirst, pain, longing, temptation, even death. Jesus is our brother because he's walked the road that we're walking. So the virgin birth is a sign to us. Jesus is both our father and our brother, our friend even. God and friend. Something that I uh, find really fascinating is that the virgin birth is hinted at from the very first pages of the Bible. First book of the Bible, book of Genesis, story of Adam and Eve. Most of you probably know the story. If you don't, I apologize because I'm just going to breeze through it really quickly. But Adam and Eve are put in a garden and God says to them, you can enjoy any tree, any fruit in this whole garden. It's all for you to enjoy, but I just ask you to avoid that one tree. Just don't eat fruit from that tree. And then this serpent shows up and deceives Eve into eating from that tree. And the way that he deceives her is basically by saying, you know, that God, did he tell you not to eat from that tree? I mean, oh, come on. See, God's withholding something from you. God doesn't really want what's best for you. God's afraid that if you eat from that tree, you're going to compete with him in some way. And, and God just wants to guard his, uh, him, him, himself being special and different from you. And, and so he's trying to deprive you of something. And so then Eve falls for the temptation. She eats from the tree. Adam just goes along with it. And sin enters the world. And after that happens, God speaks to the snake, the serpent, that led Eve in the deception. And this is what he says. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, or you know, I will make enemies, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, let's just try taking it super literally, as literally as possible. If we take it literally, God is saying, Serpent, because of what you've done, I'm taking away your legs. And uh, now you're going to have to crawl around, and all that dust and sand is going to get in your, in your nose and your mouth. <laughs> Ugh. And... Um, I'm going to make sure that you and the woman don't get along well. Your snake babies are not going to like her babies. And her babies are not going to like your snake babies. 
And one day, though, one of her descendants is going to step on your head. But when he does it, you're going to get your fangs into his heel. Ouch. Okay. So that's, that's what it means if we take it as literally as possible, right? Now, to be honest, I don't know any serious Bible scholar from the farthest end of the conservative side to the farthest end of the liberal side that thinks that that is what God is saying there. These words are symbols that are meant to convey something far more important than why we don't like snakes or why snakes don't have legs. So, let me offer a different interpretation. The serpent is a representation of what we would call the devil. And uh, the Bible confirms this all the way in the book of Revelation. So if the Bible were a TV series, you know, it holds on revealing that mystery until the very end, <laughs> the last episode. <laughs> but um, yeah, the book of Revelation says... In uh, Revelation 22, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan. So all of these images throughout Scripture are brought together, and it's, it's all, this is the same being, right? The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan. So the serpent is a representation of the devil, and as such, he is a representation of the power that leads us to sin. There is a power that leads us to sin. It leads us towards death. It leads us towards the dissolution of healthy relationships. It leads to destruction and chaos in the world and violence. There is a power that is at work in every one of us and in the world, this power of sin. And it is rooted in belief in the lie that God is not really good. That's how the serpent deceived Eve. So it is the, the power of evil that God is speaking to in Genesis 3. This power that leads us to sin. And when God says, you will crawl on your belly and eat dust, these are idioms, meaning you will be humiliated and destroyed. So when you crawl on your belly, you're down as low as you can go, right? Brought low, humiliated. And eating dust, that is a metaphor for death, right? Um, you know that, that uh, phrase you hear sometimes, someone took a dirt nap, right? It's kind of like that. Um, or you might say, uh, my car bit the dust. What do you mean? You mean it died, right? So, God is saying to the power of evil, the devil... You will be humiliated and destroyed. And there is a hint in here of how that is going to happen. Just a hint. It's very cryptic. And part of the hint is that it will happen through a particular individual. Notice that our translation says, He shall bruise your head. Not they will bruise your head, but he shall bruise your head. And who is this he? Well, the only thing that we are told about him is that he is the seed of a woman. 
The seed of a woman, some translations say the offspring of a woman. The one who will crush the serpent is the seed of a woman. Now, you might remember that in the first message in this series, when we looked at Jesus' genealogy, one of the things that we talked about is that when Hebrews recorded their genealogy, it was traced through the father, right? So-and-so was the son of so-and-so, was the son of so-and-so, so, and, and, and on and on, right? So typically, in Hebrew thought, you didn't talk about a woman's seed, you talk about a father's seed or a man's seed. Men were thought of as the ones who had seed. Now, to be fair, I tried to do my homework on this, and there are a few exceptions in the Bible. Uh, in Genesis, there's a reference to Hagar's seed. Hagar was a woman, so I don't want to push this point too far. But generally speaking, people were the seed of their father, not the seed of their mother. And yet here, the emphasis is on this person will be the seed of a woman. And when you think about it, I mean, God could have said something like, I will put enmity between you and the man, and between your seed and his seed. But he doesn't say that. Or he could have said, I will put enmity between the woman and uh, the man and the woman, and their seed and your seed. But he, he doesn't say that, right? He says, I will put enmity between the woman and her seed. Um, so that's interesting, right? So I and many others throughout the history of the church see here in the very beginning of the Bible a hint of what is to come, that the one who will deliver us from the power of sin will be born of a virgin. And you might notice that there is also a hint here of the cross. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, we're told that in stomping the power of evil, the one who stomps is going to get injured when he does the stomping. And, of course, we see that fulfilled in the cross, right? Because when Jesus stomped on the power of death, he also had to endure the pain of the cross. His heel was bruised. So we see hints of the gospel right here in the third chapter of the Bible. Right after things go wrong, we've already got hints of the redemption that is to come. But let's get back to the virgin birth. So if somebody would be willing to uh, hit the lights, I've got a piece of artwork that I want us to appreciate. Um, yep, thanks Tess. Has anyone seen this before? This image? So, <clears throat> I'm glad that actually uh, most of you have not. So this is a crayon and pencil drawing uh, by a woman named Sister Grace Remington. She is a nun belonging to the Cistercian Order. And this is, I think, a, a good image to just sit with for a little while and take in and reflect on. Uh, this is Mary and Eve. And you can see that Eve is holding the forbidden fruit close to her chest, right? And um, she's looking distraught and ashamed. At least that's the way that I perceive her. And there's a snake that's coiled around one of her legs, and it's 
wrapped around her other leg. So she is entangled in sin and death. But then you have Mary, who's with child, and she's facing her and, and looking at her. Eve can't bring herself to look Mary in the eye, right? But Mary is looking at her, trying to look in her eye, looking at her compassionately. And Eve is looking at Mary's pregnant belly, and she has her hand on it, and it's like she's wondering, could this be the one who's going to make things right? Could this be the one that was promised, the one that will crush the head of the serpent? And if you look to the bottom, you can see that Mary is already standing on the head of the snake that's wrapped around Eve. So the Cistercians of the Mississippi Abbey, they print these out as Christmas cards. And inside, they include these words. Uh, Mary speaking to Eve. My mother, my daughter, life-giving Eve, do not be ashamed, do not grieve. The former things have passed away. Our God has brought us to a new day. See, I am with child, through whom all will be reconciled. O Eve, my sister, my friend, we will re rejoice together forever, life without end. I love that. Mary consoling Eve. It's a beautiful image. Now, of course, this image and these words, it's not historical. It didn't literally happen. This is art. Uh, when Mary was pregnant, Eve was long gone. So uh, I doubt they had this exchange. But something very true is being expressed here. Don't be so literal-minded that you can't appreciate this. The point is that what God did through Mary healed what had been done through Eve. Sin is strong, but God's healing power is stronger. You know, in a sense, we are all Eve. Even Mary here recognizes that she is descended from Eve, right? She calls her mother. I like how the artist has her referring to Eve both as her mother and her daughter. It's kind of strange, right? Well, Eve is her mother in the literal sense that uh, she is her descendant, right? Uh, Mary was born into a world of sin and death. But Eve is also Mary's daughter in the sense that through Mary, a new humanity comes. Through Mary's child, rather, through Jesus. And it is a humanity redeemed, set free from the curse of sin and death. One where we become sons and daughters of God uh, and this redemption gives hope not only to those born after Jesus, but it also has this redemptive power that works backwards throughout history all the way to the beginning. You know, when we say the Apostles' Creed, we, we say how after Jesus died, he descended to the dead. And um, some people think, oh, it means he went down to hell to suffer more punishment. Well, when Jesus was on the cross, at the end, he said, it is finished. I don't think Jesus went down to the realm of the dead to suffer more punishment. I think he went down there to claim the souls that are his. 
So Eve, too, can be redeemed by Jesus. I love that Mary also calls Eve her sister and her friend. Mother, daughter, sister, friend. (laughs) All four of those. You know, I can imagine an unfortunate version of this where Mary is looking at Eve judgmentally and saying, boy, you sure made a mess of things. Shame on you. At least I get to help make things better for future generations. But the artist gets this right in having Mary console Eve because the one who is within her will be a consolation for sinners. Like we talked about last week, Jesus said, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call righteous people, but sinners. So the comfort that Mary is offering in this picture is, should be comfort offered to us as well. That's the way that we should see it. I mean, if it's offered even to the one who was there when things first went off the rails, it's offered to us too. Like Eve, we have all lived under the curse of sin and death, entangled by the serpent, alienated from God, burdened by shame and guilt and regret. But about 2,000 years ago, God entered our world and entered our condition to overcome the power of sin and death. And God did everything that was needed to crush the head of the serpent, to crush the power of sin and death. Everything that was needed to be done to forgive our guilt and relieve our shame and offer us eternal life. As the opening of John's Gospel says, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Maybe this morning you feel a little bit like Eve in this picture. Maybe you're feeling the weight of death and sin. Maybe you feel like the serpent has you in his grip. If so, I want you to be comforted. God has intervened. He brought life to Mary's womb when it was impossible for it to be there. And he could bring new life to your soul, even if it seems impossible for it to be there. Amen? Lord, we, we give you thanks for your special, miraculous intervention in this broken world. Lord, I pray that we would experience the joy of knowing that you have intervened, that you have birthed new life in us through Jesus. And Lord, if there are any of us here who don't know that new life, haven't experienced it, Um, We pray, Lord, that you would awaken faith in them, in us. We give you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.